uh, I think most people in evangelicalism, when they see a squirrel, thinks of Gene Clyde. It's really strange when you think about it. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your Squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. Good to have you with us. It is Thursday, the 9th day of February, 2023. And I hope you are having a wonderful week. It's almost over, folks. we got two more days, and we're into the weekend. So uh, look forward to that. And I think that scratchy throat I woke up with yesterday is turning into a full-blown cold. I woke up with a runny nose this morning, and I've got, uh, I've got some issues. So I may be hitting the cough button a little bit more frequently than normal, just to give you guys a heads up. This is Squirrel Chatter, a podcast that's dedicated to scripture, theology, history, current events, and whatever else it is that I want to talk about. And we webcast every day at 7.30 a.m. Mountain on Twitter, Facebook, and Twitch. And the podcast is then, audio podcast is available for download wherever you find, find podcasts. And we're a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can head on over to ChristianPodcastCommunity.com, check out all the great curated podcasts, you are certain to find something worth listening to. Um, I was listening to, uh, oh, I can't think what the name of, of Pete's podcast is. Uh, oh, darn it. <laughs> uh, I don't have time to look it up. But uh, one, of, one of the podcasts, uh, he's a professor down at uh, Shepherds, and he interviewed uh, a professor, Greg Frazier, from the Master's College. Masters University, who uh, um, on the faith of our founding fathers. And if you've never listened to Dr. Frazier on that, I encourage you to do so. He has done the research and he's got the receipts about who was and who wasn't a believer in the founding. Um, most of them were not what we would consider to be evangelical Christians or Orthodox Christians. Some of them definitely were Bible-believing Christians, but they also weren't the deists that the liberals want us to want to portray them as. So there's some interesting stuff in, uh, in Dr. Frazier's stuff, and, and Pete's interview with him is really good. I listened to that yesterday. Bible Sojourner, that's Pete's podcast. I knew it would come to me if I just kept remembering it. But you can find that and other great podcasts over at ChristianPodcastCommunity.com. And uh, I'll just point you toward that one because it, it was a good good interview. And I like Dr. Frazier's work on that subject. Um, all right, well, in our podcast today, we got prayers from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. We have a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ, Volume 1. And it is Theology Thursday. So we are going to be finishing up the London Baptist Confession of Faith, Chapter 9 of Free Will. Today we're going to be looking at paragraphs 3, 4, and 5. Now I'm taking larger chunks of the 1689, mainly because I have more time. Um, 
when I started Theology Thursday, I was doing one paragraph after doing the daily Bible reading. And so that was, you know, 15, 20 minutes was all we really had. But now that uh, that is the show, <laughs> I can pretty much spend uh, more time. So we're going to, we're picking up the pace a little bit. We started chapter nine last week. We're finishing it up this week. And next week we'll move into chapter 10. All right, well, let's begin, as is our practice, with the prayer of confession from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. Let us pray. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life, to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. And now our reading from Dr. MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ, Volume 1. Today's reading is, The Tempter is Real. And the tempter came and said to him, Matthew 4, 3a. Dr. MacArthur writes, It is not popular today to believe in a literal personal devil, even among professing Christians. The devil is increasingly seen as being somewhere between a figment of our imagination and a useful device to coerce obedience. Yet, in addition to the name used here, tempter, the New Testament gives Satan many other names. Ruler of this world, John 12, 31, John 14, 30, John 16, 11. The prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, 2. The god of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4. Abaddon and Apollyon, both of which mean destroyer, Revelation 9.11. Editorial note, I think Abaddon or Apollyon may refer to a subordinate demon, um, just in reading that, but I'm not going to argue with Dr. MacArthur about that too much. And finally, the serpent of old, Revelation 12.9. With these and many other references to the devil and God's infallible scriptures, all of which assume a real supernatural person, it's clear that Satan does exist. And he never made himself more personally manifested than when he confronted Jesus in the wilderness. The Lord's opponent was an actual personal foe in every sense of that expression. Since the fall, Satan has directed his full attention and fury against God and his kingdom work. While Christ was on earth, that opposition was particularly intense against the Son and his redemptive mission, beginning at the very outset of his ministry. Yet all the forces of hell continue to present us with real challenges as we endeavor to advance God's kingdom. Thus all believers must remain ever vigilant and prayerful against a genuine spiritual foe. Ask yourself, have you grown lax in guarding yourself from the roaring lion, 1 Peter 5.8, who actively seeks to devour you? He is not to be feared, for your God is triumphant, but he is definitely in need of accounting for. Ask the Lord to make you wise and wary of the enemy's presence.
Amen. All right. We are in the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, Chapter 9 of Free Will, and we are picking up in Paragraph 3. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So, as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. So in the first couple of paragraphs, we looked at the fact that God, was, uh, God made man innocent and God had the will to choose to do good or evil, but that in Adam's choosing to do evil, to disobey God, we are all thereby corrupted through Adam's sin. And so by our fall into the state of sin, we have lost the ability to will to do any spiritual good. Um, now we're given uh, a couple of scriptural proofs here. So he gives, man by his fallen state has wholly lost all ability of will to do any spiritual good accompanying salvation. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So we were weak. That's referring to our inability. Um, just as a, a the, the proverbial 98-pound weakling is not going to win the cling and jerk competition at the Olympics because he is unable to lift the weight. We are weak and unable to, to will to do anything good. We are ungodly, Paul says in Romans 5, 6. So Christ died for the ungodly. He died to save sinners who are weak and cannot save themselves. Later in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, Paul writes, Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to do the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. So the, the natural mind, the natural man, the unregenerate man is hostile to God. Um, we are surrounded by enemies of God. People are not neutral. They're, they're, they're either slaves of God or slaves of sin. That's what the scripture says. And those that are slaves of sin are hostile towards God. They hate God. Um, I don't remember who said it, but it's one of the best lines ever. I was talking about modern atheism. It said that the creed of the modern atheist is, there is no God and I hate him. And that's absolutely true. There is a, 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 a hostility toward God. They don't like, the, they don't like God. But, and, and the reason is, Romans 1, they know God exists. Okay? God doesn't believe in atheists. We've talked about that before. Everybody knows God exists. That's why the natural man is hostile to God. Because God is in the way of the natural man fulfilling his own sinful lusts and desires. So the, the paragraph continues with, So as a natural man, being altogether reversed from that good and dead in sin... And we're given Ephesians 2, verses 1 and verse 5. 
But I'm going to read the whole passage of 1 through 5 because it just, the context I think is, is key. And it's one of the most powerful passages about where we were when Christ saved us. And also where everybody else is who has not been saved by Christ. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also all formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So look at what Paul says about the pre-converted sinner. Dead in transgressions and sins. Sons of disobedience. Children of wrath. Dead in our transgressions, again, is repeated. So this is the state of the natural man because of the fall of man. The will has been subjected to sin so that we are not able to choose that which is good. Now, we are able to do what everybody generally agrees are good acts. I, you know, helping the little old lady across the street, giving to charities, you know, donating organs. I mean, you can come up with all sorts of things that natural people do, which we would all consider to be quote unquote good things. But all of these things not done in faith are sinful acts. And that's something that's hard for us to wrap our minds around sometimes, um, that these are sinful acts. Excuse me for just a moment. I will be right back. Okay, I am back. Sorry about that. Once again, uh, I do believe I'm coming down with a cold. <laughs> I'll blame all the kids up at camp last weekend. <laughs> I was around a lot of kids, so that's just the way of it. I mean, it couldn't have been the basketball game I drove earlier in the week or anything like that. It had to have been all the kids at camp, right? Okay, so the 1689 continues with, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. So the, the writers of the 1689 are saying that we cannot save ourselves because we can't do good works. We don't have the strength to convert ourselves. We don't have the strength to choose to follow Christ unless he makes us alive together with him. We can't even prepare ourselves for conversion. Um, it, this is one of the problems with, with a, a whole set of doctrines that have been called pre, uh, what are they called? Pre-evangelism. Getting people ready to be converted. Getting people ready to hear the gospel. In one sense, it's not a bad thing. You're, you're destroying worldly strongholds, showing the weakness of worldly philosophies, etc. So in that sense, pre-evangelism is not a bad thing. But 
apart from the power of the Spirit, most of the most of the quote unquote pre evangelism strategies that I've seen um, really accomplish only one sad thing, and that is to make people comfortable in their sins. Um, it doesn't confront sin as much as it confronts inadequacies of a secular worldview or an atheist worldview. And that's not the gospel. And, and we should be proclaiming the gospel, not trying to tear down earthly... Uh, now, we do tear down earthly strongholds and, and, and uh, point out errors, but we have to do that in the full context of the gospel. Because if we just tear down earthly philosophies, secular worldviews, elements of secularism that don't work without replacing them with the gospel immediately, we're not helping. Because if we show somebody all the errors of whatever secular worldview they have, but we don't give them the gospel... When we come back and talk to them again, we're going to find out that they've adopted some other worldly worldview because their current worldview, their previously held worldview was shown to be inadequate. We've got to give them the gospel because they're not going to choose on their own to follow Christ. The scriptural proof here is Titus 3, 3 through 5 where we read, For we ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hated, hating one another. But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Apart from a work of the Holy Spirit, no man will ever be converted. We were, uh, look at that, disobedient, foolish, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and, lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, Despicable. We were, we were to be despised. We hated each other. Yeah. This is the, the core of the selfish, unregenerate person. And it's only through the work of the, the Holy Spirit that we are regenerated and renewed and brought to spiritual life and repentance and saving faith. We're also given chapter, John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. We've walked through John 6 a couple of times on this program. Very important chapter for understanding the sovereignty of God and salvation. Um, it's another place that you should spend some time in. Get very familiar with Jesus' arguments in John chapter 6 because they are very important to understanding the role that God plays in salvation. Paragraph 4. When God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, 
he frees him from his natural bondage under sin, and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Yet so as that by reason of his remaining corruptions, he does not perfectly nor only will that which is good, but does also will that which is evil. So after conversion, while we are given the grace of God and we are given the ability to freely choose and do what is spiritually good, we're never tempted without God giving us a way out, a way of escape. So we, we have the ability to, to um, choose to do good, but because of our remaining corruption, we're still living in sinful flesh, we're still living in a sinful world, and, and you know, so we still choose to will and to do that which is evil. We cannot perfectly do that which is good, and we still choose to do that which is evil. And this is, this is just the reality of the Christian life. Um, this is why the Christian life has to be one of repentance. We have to constantly be in a state of repentance because we're constantly in a state of disobedience and sin, even though we have been regenerated and made alive. Now, the first clause says, when God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he frees him from his natural bondage to sin. The scriptural proof here is Colossians 1.13, where we read who, that who refers to the Father. And so it's he who. Um, the he is implied. The sentence actually in the Legacy Standard Bible starts with the who, but it's he who. And it's referring to the Father. He who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of his love. So we have been rescued from the authority of darkness, and we have been transferred to the authority of Jesus Christ, his kingdom. And it's the, the, the kingdom of the Son of his love. What a, what a wonderful phrase. Also, uh, John 8, Jesus says, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So we are freed from sin, but not perfectly. It says, so, uh, the next clause is, by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritual good. The scriptural proof there is Philippians 2.13. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do, or will and to work for his good pleasure. So the Holy Spirit working in us enables us to both will, that's our desire, I choose to do good, and to actually do good. So when we come to Christ, when we are in Christ, we can do good things for good reasons. We can act righteously. Whereas we couldn't before. Even the, the good acts that, that the unconverted sinner does are not righteous because they're not done in faith. Um, I'm not saying they should stop doing them. <laughs> you know? It's just the fact that these, these have no spiritual benefit at all because the, the person doing them is spiritually dead. Um, but once we come to saving faith, 
the Holy Spirit acting in us enables us to will and to work for his good pleasure. So once we come to saving faith, we can do things that please God, whereas before we couldn't. But, as the clause continues, it says, Yet so, as that by reason of his remaining corruptions, he does not perfectly nor only will that which is good, but does also will that which is evil. And uh, this is Romans 7.15. Paul says, For what I am working out I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. There's a lot of discussion about Romans 7. If this is Paul talking about pre-conversion or if he's talking about his life as a Christian, it's clear he's talking about his life as a Christian. Um, we choose to do things that are sinful. We do things that are sinful even though we really don't want to in our spirit because we're still influenced by our flesh and by the world. And we find ourselves saying things and doing things sometimes, and we, you know, if we're, if we're attentive, we stop ourselves and go, oh, what am I doing? If we're not being attentive, we just go right ahead and do it. And, and that's all of us. We do that which we hate. Um, all of these verses are from chapter 7. 18 and 19 is next. It says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the working out of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. So this is, again, the, the state of the believer who is regenerate, but still in this world. We have not yet been glorified. Except before I, I, I first read it in the writings of J.C. Ryle, I don't know if he was the first to say it or not, but when we come to Christ for salvation, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are justified, we are forgiven, we are declared righteous, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. At that instant, we are able to stand before the Father, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, without guilt, without shame, free from the bondages of sin, free from the penalty of sin. So that's what happens instantly when we're saved. But as we live our Christian life here on this earth, we are being saved continuously from the power of sin. But we're still struggling with sin. And folks, if you're struggling with sin, that's a good sign. A lot of people I talk to, they're struggling with sin, and they just, I can't get victory over this. I'm struggling with this. I keep doing this, you know, whatever it is. I get drawn back into it, and, and I'm just scared that I'm not really saved. Okay. Here's the thing. Christians struggle against sin. Non-Christians wallow in sin. Even when they know something is destructive, they can rejoice in it and continue in it with, it's not true enjoyment, but with a, a gusto and a fervor that, you know, 
that that they can they can declare their their righteous anger with the world and they're going to do what they can they're going to do but the the christian who struggles against sin that's a good sign you're really a christian it's not the only sign it's not a perfect sign you can have somebody like i said that struggles against a bad habit because they know it's damaging to them you know a person for health reasons who struggles to quit drinking or something like that and by drinking i'm talking about drunkenness i'm not talking about having a beer with your pizza Talk about somebody living a lifestyle of drunkenness that the Bible condemns. If someone is living that lifestyle and it's affecting them adversely health-wise and they struggle to stop drinking because of their health, that's not, not the same thing as struggling to get out of a sinful lifestyle because you want to live righteously and please God. But you're still going to struggle with the flesh. And there are people that, that struggle with these things. Sometimes for years. Um, I was listening to John MacArthur not too long ago. I don't know when the message was, was recorded. But he was talking about visiting a church member in the hospital who was elderly and who was dying. And visiting with him and praying with him as, as, as he was preparing to, to leave this world and, and go to go to his maker. And he said, Dr. MacArthur said that the, the man he was, he was with, he said the one thing, and this is a guy, an old guy, in his, you know, I don't know, 70s, 80s, you know, in the hospital at the end of a life. And he told Dr. MacArthur, he said, the one thing that bothers me is I was never able to get victory over pornography. And that was years ago. That was before it was available on your phone. So, you know, there are Christians who will struggle with sin until the day God calls them home, you know, with a particular sin. So we do the things we don't want to do, and we don't do the things we want to do because we're still in our sinful flesh even though we have been redeemed this is something that should that should comfort us because we are not going to be perfect so don't expect to be i'm not saying don't don't strive to be better um i believe last weekend i used the batting batting average analogy you know 300 batting average is pretty much going to get a pro player into the Hall of Flame, Hall of Fame, not the Hall of Flame. A, a 300 batting average is, is pretty much going to put a baseball player, professional baseball player, in the Hall of Fame. But he didn't get a hit 7 out of 10 times at bat. So 300 batting average is 30%. It's 3 out of 10. So 7 times out of 10, he didn't get a hit. But a 300 batting average, lifetime batting average, is phenomenal. And so, you know, but to get that 300 batting average takes 100% commitment to, to the workouts, to the, to the batting cages, to, to all the stuff they do to keep themselves in shape and be ready to bat. You know, hand-eye coordination, the training of the hand and the eye, and doing all of that stuff to keep them at that 
condition where they can hit 300 over a lifetime baseball career. It requires 100% commitment. That's the Christian life. You may only be batting 300. But how, how hard are you trying? You know, knowing that you're going to strike out more than you get a hit. Because that's the world we live in. It was even true of the Apostle Paul. Continuing in a couple more verses in chapter 7, Paul writes, verse 21, I find then the principle that in me evil is present, in me who wants to do good. Then verse 23, But I see a different law in my members, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin, which is in my members. So this struggle is real. And that struggle is going to continue until the Lord calls us home. So we need to struggle with sin, but we cannot get downhearted when we fail. Um, We repent and we resume. Um, This is why the, the lifetime of the believer needs to be a lifetime of repentance because we are constantly in sin. And so when, when, we, when our sins are made plain to us, revealed to us, and this is something, this is, this is, I can't point to a scripture, but it is my firm belief that God does not reveal to us how sinful we really are, even after we come to Christ. And it's part of God's mercy and it's part of God's grace. Because if we truly love Christ, and if we truly desire to please God, which the true Christian does, we would be crushed to see how wicked and sinful we still are. And once we're free from the the presence of sin, once we are in the presence of God, which is the third point of the, the three, saved from the penalty of sin, being saved from the presence, power of sin, and someday we will be saved from the very presence of sin when we are glorified and when we no longer struggle with sin at all. That's the point when we will realize just what a burden we were carrying all those years. And But God in his grace doesn't show his children how truly sinful they are because it would crush us if we desire to to really, you know. Here's an example. Think about this. Compare the average three-year-old's crayon drawing with a Rembrandt or a painting by Michelangelo or, you know, some great masterpiece. You would never, ever tell that little kid that, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't show him the Rembrandt or the, the whatever masterpiece, the Monet that you're thinking of when you see his picture. You would never show him that masterpiece and say, you just don't measure up because it would crush him. He's doing the best he can. That's the best flower he can draw. And you're going to compare it to, you know, Monet's sunflowers or daisies, whatever that painting is. Uh, 
No, don't do it. You'd crush him. Well, that's the way our Lord treats us. We, we get glimpses of the perfection of Christ. We get glimpses of divine perfection enough to motivate us to improve. And we know that God is perfect and we are not. And we know that's the standard we ought to live up to. But in his grace and mercy, God doesn't really show us how far we have to go and how little we measure up until finally he lifts the burden of sin from us entirely and then we will realize what we were struggling under. But he's not going to, re- to fully reveal it. Like I said, he reveals to us our sin, but he doesn't reveal to us the totality of our sin at one time. And all of us are much more sinful than we really think we are. And, and that's by God's grace that we don't know it. So, paragraph five. This will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to do good alone in the state of glory only. And that's what I was just saying. We, we, we will not be able to do only good in this life. We will not be free to do only good. That is something for the state of glory. That's for something when we are removed from the presence of sin. Ephesians 4.13, Paul writes, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And, and elsewhere, Paul says that when we see him, when we see him in glory, we will see him like he is and we will be like him. Not that we will be omniscient or any of the divine attributes, but we will finally be free of the burden of sin and we will be able to perfectly will to do good, which we can't do now. All right, well, that's the end of chapter 9 on free will. Let us recite together the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now the collect for grace. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, almighty and everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day, Defend us in the same with thy mighty power, and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings may be ordered by thy governance to do always that is righteous in thy sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, folks, that's Squirrel Chatter for Thursday. I've got a busy day getting ready for Bible study tonight. You probably have a bunch of stuff ahead of you. Go out and have a great day. 
Remember to do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. And whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. We'll see you again here tomorrow for another episode of Scroll Chatter. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.